Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. All right, that sounded good. You guys sound good this morning. Hey, if you're new with us or this is your first Sunday, we're in the middle of a series we've titled Rethink Religion. And our hope in this is really to restore to this word religion uh, what it really was intended, at least from Christianity. But what we've been doing here is kind of defining this concept that religion, at least man-made religion as we see it all across the world, is kind of this performance-based guide that when you perform properly, then you receive acceptance by God, whoever that God is in that religion. But Christianity is totally different. It's unique from every world religion in that it turns that upside down. Christianity is not performance-based. It's forgiveness-based. It's based on someone else's perfect performance for us. And so today we're going to look at the relational aspects of that and why that totally changes how we relate to one another in Christianity and in the church. Because here's, here's the, 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 the nuts and bolts of it, is our hearts are hardwired toward performance. Our hearts are hardwired in our brokenness towards performance-based relationships. In fact, that's really the reason why even within the church, there's so many church splits that take place based on that. There's so many relational splits that take place even within the church because even though we may be acting in the church, we don't often act like the church. You see, these splits are not because uh, forgiveness-based relationships fail. They're because we fail to apply forgiveness in the way God's called us to. It's not a failure of forgiveness. It's a failure of us to live in light of forgiveness. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I were having a, a discussion. You ever have those discussions? Like that's, that's how we have to say them as Christians because we don't argue or fight. We just have discussions. Or as one of our pastors says, intense fellowship. I love that. <laughs> that. So we've been working through some financial uh, goals that we have and some issues we've faced uh, and so as we were talking about them, uh, she approached me about something that she was asking some questions about. And as she was asking these questions, I noticed I was becoming more and more irritated as she was asking. It wasn't because of how she was asking necessarily. It's because I felt she was like calling me out on something. And what I began to do is rather than just hearing that and, and listening to it, I, I began to say, you're, you're challenging my performance, aren't you? You're challenging how I'm leading in this area. And instead of just working through it and pressing in, I did what every godly husband does. I started digging up the past of how she'd done the same thing years ago, right? Isn't that how you're supposed to handle it? And threw some of those stones back at her. And let me tell you, it worked great. <laughs> you know, before you know it, we were in different parts of the house and we weren't wanting to talk about it. And we're each building our case kind of of how the other one blew it. And, um, I'm making this up. This has never really happened to me, right? <laughs> I wish that was true. And as I started processing through that, I, I realized uh, my issues, I wanted to get hung up on that moment and how things were being handled there. And I couldn't get over my offense. And here's what's kind of annoying about God. Even for us pastors, he often gives us messages that we need to share with others, but we really need to put into practice ourselves. Is there a humming? Am I the only one that's hearing that? There we go. That's better. I think they wanted me to. 
Anyways, bringing, bringing that back, what I realized is that, that if we were going to come back and work through this, it wasn't going to be because I could justify my point. It was going to be because I realized, you know what? In this process, both of us need forgiveness. I need it as much as anyone. I've been forgiven so much. How could I hold this little offense that I've made huge to such a degree that I'm unwilling to work through this and process it? My guess is I'm not the only one sitting in this room that's had issues with forgiveness. In fact, if there's 400 people in this room, there's probably 400 of us uh, that have some issues in our lives right now that deal with forgiveness. And in our natural brokenness, we want to work towards a performance-based relationship. Unless you perform properly for me, I'm not going to be related to you. I'm not going to relate with you. I want to get down to the heart of this Christian faith and this issue of forgiveness. I'm just going to be real straight with you today. Uh, We're going to deal with some really hard, heartfelt issues. But that's good. Because many of us are carrying issues in this realm of forgiveness and unforgiveness that are absolutely ruining our lives. And the beauty of God's Word, the beauty of God Himself, is that He has given us so much truth that's so practical in these kinds of ways. And we're going to open up a passage, a particular chapter, where Jesus is teaching His disciples about, about forgiveness. And they wrestled with the exact same things that you and I wrestle with. In fact, I want to show you uh, four things that kind of, uh, the reasons why forgiveness fails. And I say the reason why forgiveness fails, not because forgiveness doesn't work, but because we misuse it. And here's four things we're going to see today as we jump into this. One of them is we put limits on it. It's one of the reasons forgiveness fails in our lives. The reason why many of us are dealing with forgiveness issues or unforgiveness is we put limits on it. We're going to see how Jesus talks to us about that. The next one is we fail to pursue it properly. We've bought into a, a view of forgiveness that's really not biblically based, but it's maybe more therapeutically based, for lack of a better word. And that's not anything against therapy. It's just to realize there are some principles that we have to embrace for forgiveness to be properly applied in our lives. We lose perspective. It's another reason why forgiveness fails. In fact, if you miss everything else on this message, I am okay with that. Don't lose this, because this is the heart of what Jesus is talking about in this passage today. So these things I'm going to skim through pretty quick, but let you know they're there because we need them. You may need to go back and look at them. Don't miss this one. This is the heart of it. Perspective makes all the difference. If you lose this, you'll be unwilling to do any of these other things. But you can have the mechanics down and lose perspective, and you'll totally be lost in regards to forgiveness. And the last one is We refuse to let it transform us. We refuse to let it transform us. These are four reasons we're going to see today why forgiveness has failed in our lives. Let's pray and then we'll open up God's word and let it speak to our hearts. Father, this is a very personal one. Lord, it doesn't take many hours or days or even moments to go by um, 
without us having some issue or some situation where we need to uh, offer forgiveness or think differently about this issue. And Lord, I'm um, not so blind as to think there are people here today, myself included, whom uh, this is a very painful issue in their lives. Lord, I can't fix that. I can't change that. Uh, but you can. You're a God who changes hearts, who transforms hearts. And you, in your kindness and your mercy, um, can soften something that we've so hardened in our own lives, um, even beyond our own abilities. And so, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would do the work only he can do in our hearts and our lives today so that we might be freed to be the people you have called us to be. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Why forgiveness fails, these four reasons, and we're gonna answer them in, in four questions that are surfaced in this passage. So Matthew chapter 18, that's where we're at today. Matthew chapter 18 is a, a chapter in the Gospels where Jesus really spends almost this whole chapter talking about it. So I'm covering one chunk of it. There's other aspects in here. You really need to see this whole chapter together. I'd encourage you to go back and read through it all together. We often hunt and peck different things out of the Bible and create our own views of some of these things. But uh, this one is pretty comprehensive on a lot of these aspects of, of forgiveness. So let's take a look at it and see where it, it starts. It starts with a conversation between Peter and Jesus. And Peter comes up and says, And Peter approached him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? <laughs> so I'm just going to say this out loud. I don't know if Peter was married at this point, and he certainly didn't have any kids, right? Because this number wouldn't even be on the Richter scale if he had both of those in his life and thinking, hey, I can stop it here. But let me share you a little of the context here. In Peter's time, the rabbis, the, the religious leaders of his day, did have a, a law that forgiveness, you were required to forgive someone for an offense three times. After that third time, you no longer needed to. So what's a, a little bit humorous in this story, and, a, and a, a person in that context reading it would have thought this was funny, is Peter's really coming up, and as Peter often does, Peter likes to come up and kind of spread his wings and, and say, hey, Jesus, are you going to be impressed with, with who I am? Because he goes to seven. Like he more than doubles it. And in their time, the number seven was kind of this number of completion. So Peter's coming up and saying, hey, Jesus, should I forgive him seven times? And he's just kind of waiting to, to get a pat on the back. And Jesus responds to him and says, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Or some of your versions will say 77 times. And Jesus isn't, again, giving a formula. He's using hyperbole or exaggeration. He's taken Peter's great you know, advanced from what the rabbis taught, and he's just like blowing it out of the water. I'm going to multiply it by 10, and I'm going to multiply it by 7. I'm going to take this number of completion, I'm going to multiply it by a factor of 10, and I'm going to multiply it by itself. Basically saying, it's unlimited, Peter. There's no limits as to how much you're called to forgive. And that's his first point. Now, I know what you're saying when you see that. Excuse me if I go back. You're saying, well, well Chad you don't realize some of the people that I'm around. I mean, they keep doing the same thing over and over again, and, and I find myself having to deal with, really, I got to forgive these people over and over? I mean, I should forgive them without confronting their actions? It seems like nothing ever changes from it. 
I'm so glad you uh, throw that out there because that's exactly what Jesus talks about in this passage. Now, just prior to this, if we back up a little bit, Jesus talks about some of these aspects of forgiveness. This is the limits we put on it, but he also tells us about the process of it. How are we to go about forgiveness? And it it involves some of these things. Now, I'm going to cruise through this very quickly, but I want you to see this here and just take these nuggets, but we want to move to the main point of the perspective. He says, if your brother or sister, another Christian, sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, here's something I want you to think about. And here's why we have problems in the church. We do the exact opposite of what this passage says. What we often do is we go to everyone except the one that we should go to. And here's the beauty of God's word is it just really addresses these things in a healthy way. One, for, because if you do this, you respect the dignity of another brother and sister in Christ. Even though we all blow it, when you go to them privately and give them the opportunity to, to seek forgiveness, you bring restoration without everyone in the body needing to know. We tend to think, oh, everyone should know about it. We love gossip. We love to hear about what's going on. But that's our own brokenness that leads to that rather than a healthy process. One of the reasons forgiveness fails is we don't apply it properly. It's like taking a wrench and trying to hammer a nail in. Keep going. He says, if you won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. So if the two of you can't wait, and this is why it's important to go there. One of the things I've learned is even as I approach my wife in this situation, as you approach someone, one of the challenges there is you never have the full truth in your own mind. Now you have your truth and you think it's accurate and we keep running it over and over and over again. But once you go to that other person and sit down and talk about it, you know what they're going to do? They're going to reveal some details that you don't quite remember. And they're going to tell you some things that you said that you don't think you said. Am I touching a nerve on here with anyone? And that's why we often don't like to do that. We'd rather run our story because we look great in our story. And we love to tell everyone else about how great we look and what a schmuck that other person is. But when you go to them, you come to find out, yeah, they may have hurt you, but there's probably some issue or fault that you bring to the table, even if it's extremely small in comparison to theirs. And sometimes when that doesn't work out, it says go to your community. You might need to bring some others, one or two, not everyone, still keeping it small, keeping it as private as possible to bring some objectivity to it. This is called biblical counsel in a lot of ways, which is healthy. Then he says if, it doesn't, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church or the gathering of the ch- people. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Now, I can't go into explaining this a whole lot, but it's really this. is There's a point in the forgiveness process where when a person is not willing to reconcile or, or bring forgiveness, that you might have to change the boundaries on your relationship in order to keep them healthy and you healthy. It's done in a loving way, but it's firm boundary changes in order to, and that could look different in a lot of different situations, but I don't want to get bogged down to that. But let me give you uh, three things that you can learn from that really quick. Forgiveness should confront the issue, not simply excuse it. If you think forgiveness is just you privately dealing with something and never addressing the one who offended you, then you're, you're applying something other than forgiveness. That's excusing. 
Forgiving is loving in the sense that it addresses the problem or confronts it, just as we see here. Now, there are situations where you can't fully do that. I get that. We're not going to talk about those today. But the majority of them, we can. Okay? Second thing we should see is forgiveness should involve all parties when possible. Forgiveness is not a, an individual thing. We're such individualists in our Western society that we've turned it into something it was never intended to be. We just make it, well, I just got to deal with this. I'm going to deal with it. I'm never going to bring it up with this person. I'm not going to confront them. That's not loving. Forgiveness, in the healthiest of ways, always involves all parties whenever it's possible. There are situations, obviously, where it's not. But that should be rare and not the norm. And then lastly, forgiveness may require my community. It just may. You may not be able to reconcile some things yourself. And I'll say this out loud, but there have been seasons in my wife and I's life, in our marriage, where we've sought out Christian counseling. Just because we realize, you know what, we're just hitting some roadblocks in our marriage and we're having a hard time getting through this. And those have been things that have really blessed us. I believe everyone needs that at some point. You need other people to speak into your life to work through some issues. And, uh, and that's what God's saying here. That's what Jesus is teaching us. That's the process and why it often fails. Now, here's the perspective. The third thing, we lose perspective and that's why forgiveness fails. And the whole parable that Jesus is going to teach in this chapter is all about this perspective. So don't miss the story. So important. Jesus says, for this reason, meaning this is why you should forgive as, as often as you need to. There's no limits. This is why you should follow this process of forgiveness, doing it in a way that's loving within the community you have. He says, here's the reason why we should do this. He says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, let me give you a little history here. When a parable was told in their time, oftentimes a king, when a king was used in the parable, that king was representative of God. Okay, and that's exactly how Jesus is teaching it here. So this king represents God and the servants represent people within uh, God's kingdom, you could say. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. Let me pause here for a minute. Because right now you're not feeling the significance of this at all because there are some words that we don't fully understand. If you would have been a first century reader of this passage, you'd be totally shocked right now at what just happened. And here's why. If you understand what a talent is, the, the rate of currency in here, you understand a couple things, and even the words Jesus used. The talent was the largest form of currency known to them at that time. Okay, the largest form of currency. When Jesus said 10,000 talents, he was using the largest possible number that you could name, that there's a word for in the Greek language. So kind of like earlier, Jesus is, is using hyperbole. He's exaggerating something to make a point that's so important. He's saying, hey, the largest currency and the largest possible number you could use, put those together, and this is the debt that this guy owed. Now let me give you a little concept of that. A talent, and, and it varies because a talent was actually a weight. 
And so it depended on the material that you were using, whether it was gold or silver. But, but when, from research, scholars know that it varied probably within this range. A talent was either, a one talent was either one year's wages up to possibly 20 years wages. Okay, so one talent was worth a year's wage minimum and possibly 20 years wages. Okay, so let's just make this real practical in today's dollar. Let's say a typical wage is like $50,000. Okay, for a year. At the very minimum, one talent is $50,000. This guy owed 10,000 talents. So do the math. You have at minimum a half a billion dollars. And if it's up to 20 years, you're into the multiple billions of dollars this guy owed. An unfathomable amount. More than the GDP of that whole area back then, if that makes sense. Huge, unpayable. Selling his family, his children, was never going to cover it. Are you with me out in this? Are you feeling a little bit the story here? This guy owed an insurmountable debt, and this king just wiped it out. And for this king to wipe out that big a debt could literally threaten his kingdom. You're talking about kingdom amounts of money as opposed to personal amounts of money. And the king forgave it story continues. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii was also a form of currency, a very small one. A denarii was the equivalent of a common worker's one day's wage. Okay? So if you think of like someone working around minimum wage or $10 an hour, a denarii would have been what they made in one day. So $10 times eight hours, you're talking 80 bucks. Okay? A hundred of them, you're talking about $8,000. That's a significant debt. If someone owes me $8,000, I'm probably going to call them somewhat frequently uh, to get that money back because $8,000 you know, is, is nice. It's nice to have that. So it's not a, no debt at all, but $8,000 compared to multiple billions of dollars. Do you see where the story is going? Said he grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Those words sound familiar? Exact same words. Now, is it reasonable for this guy to say, I'll pay you back that amount? Yeah. Was it reasonable for the other servant to say that to his king? No, it was humanly impossible for him. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. Why should I be so forgiving? This is the heart of this passage. This is the heart of this truth. Why should I be willing to forgive over and over again? Why should I be willing to go through the process of forgiveness, whether it means confronting someone or bringing people in to help if I need to? Why should I? because we've been forgiven an infinite debt. My forgiveness of others should only be limited by the forgiveness that I've received from God. Jesus is making a very powerful point here. We get so hung up on this horizontal level that we often lose perspective of what's happened 
and a vertical one. So what can get in the way of us forgiving others? Let's look, look at some practical things because that's kind of what's happening here, is what can get in the way of us forgiving others? Just, let me just give you a couple things that, that tend to happen in our lives that keep us from forgiving others. One is, I see my offender's debt is so much greater than my own. This is a perspective thing. One of the reasons we struggle to forgive is we see our offender's debt is so much greater than my own. And the, the fact is, that may be true in terms of what you owe to them compared to what they owe to you. That very much may be true. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about making sure our debts to each other equal out. Instead, he's saying, I want you to see the debts that other people have towards you in light of the debt that I've forgiven in you. And when we lose that perspective, the first thing that will start happening is we will struggle to forgive other people that have offended or hurt us. Have you ever seen... um, these cartoonists that draw characters, caricatures, right? They do things like this. They take a person uh, they see and then they, they draw a caricature of them. And what a caricature does is it takes certain traits of that person and kind of exaggerates them to, for humor or just to, to draw out certain aspects of their personality. But they're not true, they're exaggerated. When we're in a place of being offended, when we're in a place of unforgiveness, this is the exact same thing that we do to the one who's offended us. We start sketching out a caricature of them in our minds. Maybe they told us a lie, but they're not just a person that told us a lie. They're a liar, and they'll only and ever be a liar. You know, that guy hurt me, or that woman hurt me, and they didn't just hurt me, that's just who they are. In fact, not just them, but every woman, every man, that's all they will ever be or become to me. You see what I'm doing? When we lose perspective, we begin sketching caricatures of people that exaggerate their negative traits in this in order to justify our unforgiveness. I love what one person said about this and how much it captures this idea of perspective. He said, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy, meaning the one who hurt me, I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. I make them less than human, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. We paint ourselves to be a lot better often in those situations, and we paint them to be a lot worse. Second thing I can do that's a perspective issue is I fail to realize I am no more worthy of compassion and forgiveness than the person who harmed me. This is huge in us because we think they don't deserve it. They don't deserve me to forgive them. They did this. They, they shouldn't ever, they, they just don't deserve it. And I'm just going to tell you right now, you're absolutely right. They don't deserve forgiveness. Forgiveness is not something that you can earn. It's something that's offered in mercy. So don't keep playing that lie because you're always going to answer it the same way. They don't deserve forgiveness, absolutely. And neither do you or I. If you park on this idea of what they deserve, you'll never overcome this hurdle. 
But instead, when you go back to the forgiveness that you've been given through Jesus Christ, you'll realize that's an undeserved forgiveness. And so I'm now compelled to offer something that is not deserved. And sometimes that's freeing to you. You can say, you know what? I'm not doing this because you deserve it. That way you think, hey, maybe there's injustice. There is some injustice. When you forgive, you choose to swallow and pay the debt that someone else created. It's not deserved. Own the fact that it's not deserved and choose to offer it with the same mercy and grace that you've been shown by your Heavenly Father. So what happens if I'm not willing to forgive? What happens if I don't? The story continues and here with the second one. It says, when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed. Just like we were, right? When you read that story, it should just cause you to go, oh, are you kidding me? After what that king did to you, you, you are, you're, Jesus tells the story perfectly so that we are so offended that anyone could possibly act the way this servant does. And he puts these characters in here that are really acting the way any of us would when we see it. They're deeply distressed and they went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Let, let, me, let me give you a real simple uh, tool for reading your Bible. This is so important. Real simple, but very powerful. Every time you hear a question or read a question in the Bible, answer it out loud. Totally will change how you read the Bible. Let's try it right here. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Answer? Yes. Every person answers it that way. When you see this, it's so obvious to us. Even if we're in a spot of unforgiveness ourselves, we know the answer to this. Yes. And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. How long was it going to take for him to pay that back? It's never going to happen, was it? Anyone offended yet? I get a little offended when I see this at this point. But I've, I've come to be more comfortable with God offending me because I'm not the judge. This almost sounds... And, and, and here's what's challenging about this is Jesus doesn't just leave this here for us to interpret however we want. He goes on to say, so also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. That one needs to sit a little bit. Here's a, maybe another way of communicating that. A refusal to forgive others' debt toward me leaves me accountable to pay my own debt toward God. That can rub us a little bit wrong. In fact, it doesn't often fit into some of our theological categories. But it's what the Bible is telling us right here. So what does it mean or what does that look like? Why is my unforgiveness so offensive? 
in one sense, that God's, in a sense, unwilling to forgive my unforgiveness. Why would Jesus end the story with such strong justice? In fact, why do we struggle? That's this question. Why do we struggle with a God who's both full of mercy and grace, but is also just? Can I say that in our Western culture, we tend to sway over to this side. We love a God of mercy. We love a God of grace, and and that's so powerful. But oftentimes, we don't realize that a true God of mercy and a true God of grace could never really love us unless he was also a God of justice. Because if there's ever going to be a kingdom for us, a heaven, as the Bible says, at some point, God has to say no to the wicked person who will continue to bring harm like we see in our world over and over and over again and refuses to submit to a holy God. Is that merciful? Is mercy saying, hey, I'm going to let that murderer or that rapist come into the kingdom of heaven and they're going to have free reign to continue to hurt you for all of eternity? Is that a heaven that you want to be part of? I don't think any of us do. In fact, I would propose you can't have a God of love and mercy and grace that is also not just and even vengeful towards what is wicked. Our problem is, is we want to define what's right and what's wrong. And we'd rather stand in judgment of God than in judgment of someone who truly is wicked. In fact, sometimes in our hearts, I got to admit this, I kind of lean a little bit in this way. It's like you almost want to get upset towards God a little bit at the end and forget who's really wicked in this passage. Who demonstrated wickedness? The person who had infinite mercy given to them and was completely unwilling to show it on a much, much smaller scale to someone else. And here's God who showed infinite mercy. And then when it didn't result in his desire of change and transformation for the good in someone, and that person refuses to become under, in a sense, God's kingship of who he was, his character, and takes it out on someone else, all God did when at that point was exact the justice that he rightly deserved. And we sometimes take offense at that. Can I just say this? If you worship a God who can never contradict or offend you, can I propose the thought that maybe you don't worship a God at all, that you worship yourself, that you worship a God that you've created in your image because the only person who will never contradict you and never offend you is you. You want to be in a relationship with a God that offends you and confronts you because it means you're actually worshiping someone greater than you. And I believe every single one of us in our hearts longs for someone greater than ourselves. So how do I correct my unforgiveness? Let me just say this real quick because I think this is important. My unforgiveness is a statement of superiority over God himself. That's why I believe this is maybe the greatest offense we can possibly give in a practical sense. My unforgiveness is a statement of superiority over God himself. What I'm saying is that God, I know this is your character, this is who you are, and you have infinitely done it in my life, but heck no. And we probably use different words when we said it. 
I am not doing. I'm never going to be even a small portion of like you. We are mocking, we're, we're blaspheming, we're, we're basically telling God, absolutely not. My way is better than yours. And that lines us up with one other person in the Bible that's exactly the same way. The devil himself. He wants things his way rather than God's way. And when we dig into this kind of behavior, it reveals who our true father really is in our lives. And that's not a kingdom. That's not a, a behavior. That's not a, a tra- change that's going to welcome us into our God's kingdom. So how, how do I correct it? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not a works-based change. It's not just mustering up forgiveness and saying, okay, I don't want to do this. I know I'm supposed to, and I don't want to be eliminated. I don't, certainly don't want to pay my, back my debt, but I'm just going to do it because that's what the Bible tells me to do. That's probably our favorite. That's our performance-based mindset again. But that's not how we, how we do it. There's two things I think that can help us in there. One is this. If I'm not forgiving, it's possible that I've not really received forgiveness in my life. I'm not saying it hasn't been offered. It was offered to this person, but this is a story. Jesus made this story up to communicate some truths. It's not intended to be a theological treatise in every single aspect. So we might say, did God save this guy or give him forgiveness and salvation and then pull it back? Or did this person never really receive that forgiveness the way it does when a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior and is born again. That may be where you're at today. You may be struggling to forgive and you may be just angry at some of this and it may simply be because you have refused to receive a forgiveness that God is graciously offering to you. There's lots of us, some of us have been in the church for years. In fact, we can be in that spot because we grew up in it and we've never really strayed way off and we've always attended church as often as it was open. We did Bible studies. We've done all this good stuff and we're relating to God on this performance-based religious kind of way. So you know what? God's fortunate to have a guy like me in his church. I mean, I'm not anywhere like a lot of these other people. And it doesn't matter how clean your life may look on the outside. You could not be further from God than you are if you've never fully understood and received the forgiveness that he gives you in Jesus Christ. That may be your step today. Maybe the best thing that could happen is you are so offended by this or you're so hurt or you're, you, you realize in this moment that your brokenness is causing you to see God improperly and to see yourself improperly. And that there's no sin you can commit, no debt too high for Jesus to forgive in your life. But when you receive that forgiveness, when you realize what it is that He has saved you from, it begins to transform you in a way that makes you willing to forgive those of, of much smaller debts. But maybe that's happened in your life and you're just at a spot where you've lost perspective. That happens to all of us. We're all in this journey and God continues to work with us. But I want to just ask, it's again, not just mustering up the strength to forgive, 
It's returning to this story, the heart of this story, and asking, what is it in this story that so compels us to think, how could this guy not forgive this other servant? What is it? We all know the answer. It's that he's been forgiven so much. He's been forgiven this infinite debt. How in the world? We all, in a sense of this, no matter where we are, we all can look at this and say, this is not right. And that's exactly where you need to be today. That's exactly where every one of us needs to be. Sometimes we lose perspective because we're so focused here. And Jesus in this story is saying, hey, don't worry about the eight or the the, the hundred denarii, the $8,000 of this debt. I'm not saying it's not a big debt to you. What I'm saying is, Turn your eyes back to the debt that you've been forgiven, Christian. Remember what it was that welcomed you into God's kingdom, into His favor. And when you do that, then you can turn that little bit of that offense back on yourself and say, God, I've been harboring this bitterness I've been unwilling. I've been that guy that's choking my brother. I may not be doing it physically, but in my mind, in my heart, in my cold shoulder, I'm choking him. I'm the one that's shaking him. And God, forgive me. I don't realize how broken I am at times, Lord. But when we look back at the forgiveness we've been given, it transforms us. You see, you'll never forgive someone because they deserve it. You never will. You will only and ever forgive because you realize how much you did not deserve the forgiveness that was infinitely poured out on you. So how do we confront it? I confront my unforgiveness by gazing at the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. Here's, I think, maybe the most amazing thing about this parable. If you remember, Jesus was telling this parable, and and in this parable, this king forgives this debt. And the only way you can forgive is to swallow the debt yourself. To say, "I'm, I'm willing to pay it myself. But here's what's ironic. The king in this story, he took the debt upon himself. He just excused it and said, all right, I'll pay it. But, but that's a story. It's a parable. In real life, in the real story, in the gospel story, there's another character in this parable. And what's missing in this parable is represented in the very person who's telling the story. Jesus left himself out of the story because God did not just say, Chad, your sins are wiped away. They're gone. He said, Chad, someone is stepping up to the plate to pay a debt that you could never pay. Someone is going to be locked in the prison that you should be locked in. And from him is going to be exacted every penny that you owe me, Chad. And he's not going there unwillingly. He's going there in love for you because he would rather see you forgiven, Chad, and suffer for it than see you trapped in that prison forever paying him back. See, Jesus told this story, but he left himself out of it. 
because he was walking to a cross to pay a debt for you and for me so that every time we gaze upon that payment, every time we look at the beating and the bruising, the rejection, the neglect, the infinite pain that he experienced on that cross so that you and I could be forgiven, that we would never forget how small the debts are between ourselves and another brother or sister. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the pain someone has caused you is not a big pain. I'm not going to tell you that the debt someone owes you is a, a small debt. I would never do that. I don't know the hurts and the debts or the pains that you bring to the table, and some of them are very big. I would never minimize that, nor is Jesus minimizing it. What he is doing is he's saying, take that pain, take that debt, and I want you to lift it up to the cross, lift it up to this innocent, perfect son of God and compare it to the debt that you've had forgiven. And I promise you, when you do that, it'll melt a heart that is so hard toward another brother or sister. It'll lighten a bitterness that can seem to consume your life. By failing to forgive another person, you make them a king in your life. You let them rule over you. But when you forgive them, when you release them from your, their debt, you allow Jesus to be king and ruler in your life. Who do you need to forgive? Who's that person that God's bringing to mind today? When you keep this perspective, he will move you to reconcile, even in places where it's not deserved. Let's pray. Father God, you never fail to meddle in our hearts when we open your word. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for your goodness. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the true king, a king who laid down his life for our forgiveness so that we might forgive others.